The king came riding from the hills astride the fiery cabo that the odd breeders had named Earthshaker. The animal's four small curved horns had been tipped with balls of gold, not for vanity, but because Earthshaker had gored some of the handlers. Propped before him on his saddle, the king held a beautiful glittering spear. It was not the long horseman's spear, such as the Amsi favored, but the man-tall warrior spear of the king's native islands. A full third of its length was graceful tapering head with inset steel edges in a body of bronze. Another third was a spirally fluted butt-spike, a haft of flamewood connected head and spike. It was a famous weapon, known from the snows of the far north to the jungle kingdoms of the south. It had become the symbol of his lordship, for it was little suited to mounted warfare, and the warriors of his elite guard seldom let him risk himself in close combat any more. Heil had spent the past night by a pool in the low foothills to the north of the town, meditating, as was his frequent custom. His people assumed that he was communing with the spirits or performing magical rites at such times, but more often he simply wanted to get away from people. To be alone for a while. Sometimes he felt that this business of being king was a mask he assumed, that, inside, he was still a herdsman warrior whose greatest pleasure was in standing solitary guard over the tribe's livestock. His guard cheered and mounted when he rode into sight. Most of them were Matwa or Amsi, but there were representatives of a dozen other peoples. The guard was becoming unwieldy, but every time a new people joined his alliance, he had to take a few young men into his personal bodyguard, lest the newcomers should feel slighted. The guard fell in behind him, and he set off for the town at a trot. An hour's ride brought them to a low rise overlooking the town, now swollen to twice its usual size by the semi-annual fair. Twice each year, the fares of the western and southern merchant trains turned the once tiny Bayala village of hard wind into a minor metropolis where a dozen languages could be heard on any street. The king had encouraged the merchants to maintain permanent factors in this town and others within his domain, guaranteeing the safety of their caravans. His matchless mounted warriors kept the grasslands free of outlaws as well as foreign enemies. The king had a large residence in the town, with barracks for his guard. He spent a month or two of each year there. There were other such residences in his most important villages and towns. They had been Dina's idea, for the queen detested living in tents. At thought of her, he felt a tug of loneliness. She loved the great fairs, but she was not with him this year. She was in her mother's house in the hills, soon to give birth to their third child, if the babe was not born already. He hoped that this would be a girl, for they already had two sons, Ansa and Cairn. Since he was wed to a Matwa, he had diplomatically given the boys Amsi names over much in-law protest. At ages eight and six, respectively, it was not clear which of the two would succeed him. Perhaps neither would. He was all too aware that these things were governed by many factors, including chance. King Hyle's own power was as much spiritual as political or military. His diplomatic skills had welded together peoples with centuries of enmity between them, 
and his feats of invention and organization made them the masters of the hills and plains. Even so, it had been the support of the spirit speakers that gave him the prestige to accomplish these things. The Amsi hailed him as the prophesied one, and the Matwa believed him to be an inspired madman like many of their legendary heroes. It was known to everyone that King Hyle enjoyed a unique and intimate relationship with the spirits of the land. He could mount a wild cabo, and it would behave like the best-trained domestic beast.